With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. True Crime Society podcast. Again, this is Stephanie here with Ashley and Olivia, your favorite people. Today we're <laughs> going to be talking about the Long Island serial killer, which is pretty interesting because it's pretty local to me. Um, I live in New York, probably about two hours away from where it happened. So it'll be good to talk about it. But let's talk about how our weeks have been. How? What have you guys been up to? Anything exciting? Uh, nothing too exciting but I guess it's been such beautiful weather here that we've been I've been taking the kids out for a walk every day we went on a big bushwalk yesterday they were a bit um hesitant at first when they actually saw how much bush there was (laughs) they're clearly not country kids but um for Americans what is the bush I think I don't know like your forest or woods I guess yeah um you know we've talked about it before for us yeah the woods (laughs) the woods so it's like really you know where you go on hikes and stuff, I guess, is, yeah. You, you a hike know, in the bush. A hike in the bush, a walk in the bush. <laughs> so anyway, they re- but in the end they loved it, which was good, and it was so, just so beautiful to get out of the house and, you know, away from iPads and, you know, all the stuff that we've been trying to use to eat up some time lately. But yeah. our coronavirus numbers are actually looking really promising. So I think in New South Wales we're like four four or five cases a day at the moment, whereas at the peak it was, you know, over 200. So it's going pretty well for us and hopefully it keeps going. I think they're going to reevaluate our lockdown in the middle of May, so probably in about two more weeks or two and a half weeks. So fingers crossed we're on the right track. How are the numbers for you, Steph? going down but they're still high like when it was at its worst we were averaging over 700 deaths a day in New York like 750 almost 800 now it's down to 400 around a day which is still a ton it's sad that you're saying 400 deaths is sounds better it's good (laughs) (laughs) but I mean the numbers are going down um I think people are getting more used to it here. When I used to go to Walmart, I would feel really overwhelmed because everything was so different. You had to wear, everyone has to wear a mask. There's reminders playing over the loudspeakers talking about, remember to wash your hands, stay six feet away from people. And it was very grim, but now it's almost like we're all used to it. I feel like everyone, or most people anyway, are in the acceptance phase now. Like, you know, it is what it is. Let's just do it and get it done. Yeah, that's how I feel like. Yeah, I just put on my mask and I'm on my way. But wearing a mask is rough. You can't breathe. It's so sweaty. Yeah. I finally ordered some masks for me and the kids. And by the time they ever arrive, this is all probably going to be finished because <laughs> we still don't have to wear masks here. It's an optional thing. Yeah, I was. I just saw yesterday, which was 
so weird. There was a legit infomercial for masks, and they were like <laughs> showing people putting them on. They're like, it's cooling. You won't be sweaty. Like it'll protect oh you when you go to the store. Order them now. Did you guys see what Britney Spears's uh, boyfriend's mask is? Because it no. does not look like a mask. What is what it? Is it? It looks like what I imagine a jock strap would look like on somebody's uh, nose. Oh, really? I'll have to look after this. Sounds that lovely. Was the highlight of my week. I'm guessing after this, anyway, people are going to wear masks on go. Like, not everyone, obviously, but there'll be an increase in the amount of people who wear masks after this, I would guess. I don't always mind it because it covers like half your face. And that's like the part of my face when I break out, it'll break out. Yeah. So it's a great cover up. <laughs> <laughs> just you do my eyes. Use makeup. less makeup as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because you just sweat it off under the mask anyways. <laughs> What's been saving. happening with you, Steph? Um, I mean, besides the coronavirus stuff, I quit my job. Just Ooh, went crazy that's... and quit. No, I'm Very... just kidding. I've been, <laughs> I've been looking for another job. So I finally got offered a new job and I quit my last job. And I felt bad. It was kind of a weird time to quit your job. But you got to do what you got to do. It's good that you could find something in this, um, you know, current craziness that you could find a new job that worked out really well. Yeah, I definitely got lucky with that. It's something that's considered essential, so they're still hiring. How's your week, Ashley? Uh, Still living the dream. The weather here is not (laughs) nice at all. My Mm. child tired of being cooped up in the house and does not want to do any work whatsoever. And um, I don't either, but work keeps going so I'm thankful to have a job and um I wish the weather was nicer so I could take my daughter outside into some hiking in the bush yeah the weather <laughs> here has been really crappy too it's been it was nice on this last Sunday it was like 60 degrees but now it's been back in the low 40s and it's been rainy and super cold so that puts an extra damper on things we're in um, autumn here now, so you're fall. And it, the weather has just been so beautiful. The kids are still swimming in the pool, which is absolutely freezing, but they still love it. You know, it's just so like every day you wake up and the now. skies are beautiful. What was that? I feel like you're just rubbing it in now. Ah, well, no, we're coming into winter now, so we're, you know, trying to make the most of it while we can. But we've been very lucky with the timing of the good weather and this lockdown. The corona's going away. <laughs> the weather's beautiful. Meanwhile, in America. <laughs> like I cried America- at Walmart today. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to come into flu season as well, so I'm hoping that that, I don't, you know, isn't going to make everything worse again, but I guess time will tell. They're saying in our fall that they suspect it'll surge again also with the regular flu, so that'll suck. Yeah, yeah it's not going to be great. It's going to be positive. It'll all be better by then. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Another exciting note that we haven't touched on yet is HLN shared one of our posts from our Facebook group, which was very exciting. We love HLN. Yes, we do. And HLN loves Stephanie. (laughs) (laughs) They love all of us. I'm just... You're a publicity girl. She says that because they they invited all of us to go at the Forensic Files premiere. But I'm the only one who lives semi-close and I win. <laughs> yeah. I also say that because Steph is our best PR person. <laughs> That's you and Kendall are better at that. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> if I need someone yelled at, I go to Ashley. That's, yes. That's actually. 
Liv and Stephanie are our best PR. <laughs> Liv is very professional. That's why I make Liv write like the post for the podcast because it always just sound good coming from me who's supposed to be a writing major. And I'm always like, Liv does a better job. I'm fairly certain Liv is a Stepford wife. <laughs> She's just too perfect. Oh my gosh. I know my husband would absolutely disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did, you, did I miss the house party talk? Oh no! Do you want me to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had our um, for anyone who's in the group, I've spoken about it a few times that we have usually a monthly book club where we all get together. Everyone takes a turn to host, so you have to host once every eighteen months or whatever, and you choose the book that everyone needs to chat about. You provide all the food and the alcohol, but obviously we've had to move it online because of all this and. Funnily enough, no one had read the book for the month. <laughs> so we all got, even though everyone has all the time in the world now, but we all got on a house party last night and had a nice catch up. And I think there might be a few sore heads this morning, but it was good fun. It's strange how it seems like we have less time now that we can go absolutely nowhere. I know. I was regretting yesterday. I had a moment of regret. And I'm like, if only I hadn't wasted all this time being depressed and sad about this, I could have got so much done. I know. There's so much cleaning I could do. I live in yeah. the tiniest apartment ever. The room I'm recording in right now is like a glorified closet, but it looks like an episode of Hoarders in here because I, <laughs> I have my clothes everywhere. And my laundry builds up because my landlord makes us pay for our laundry in quarters. And it's so oh. hard to get quarters right now. Like the banks are all closed except the drive through. So just a real hassle. So how annoying. So yeah, I'm living in filth. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you might be like that lady who they found dead in her house after she went missing in February and they found her in her house the other that day. That happens. That's like the fourth time recently that's happened. Oh my gosh. I don't remember which one it was, but I remember we were talking about it and Liv was like, imagine they find her in the house and then that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who that was a recent one too but I can't remember who it was too many of them and that does happen a lot it seems wasn't there a girlfriend in like Virginia last year that was Molly um Molly Miller I think her name was yes and they found her in her house yeah like and th- I remember like we were following the search for her as it was going on and then they just all of a sudden like oh actually we found her in the house like and nothing ever later. came out about I'm assuming that was probably a suicide or something like that because you don't often hear anything else about that right so I'm assuming that's what happened and that's what happened with this lady who we were speaking about this week as well in South Carolina strange her name was Marianne Cecilia Marsh and she went missing in February February 14 and her body was found this week in the attic of her house so if you guys wanted to look that up, just do a search for Mary Marsh from Conway, South Carolina, and you'll see all the articles about her sad, crazy death. I bet that house did not smell good. Yeah. So in today's episode and also in the next podcast episode, we're going to be discussing the Long Island serial killer. It is one of the most baffling serial murder cases in modern American history. Centered on this lonely stretch of sand on the south shore of Long Island, New York. Gilgo Beach, a small community with a big mystery on its hands. The bodies of 15 brutally murdered young women. And there seems to be a pattern. Many of them under 5 feet tall and less than 100 pounds. All dumped in the surrounding dunes over a period of 20 years. These girls did not deserve to die the way they did. They didn't deserve to have their bodies discarded in the manner 
and the families and these girls deserve justice. But as the body count has risen, confidence in anyone's ability to find the killer is at an all-time low. Since 2010, 10 murder victims have been found along the Ocean Parkway in Suffolk County, New York. Police have gone back and forth with their theories and their profiles about the killer. And the most recent stance is that they believe all the murders are the work of one killer, who they've dubbed the Long Island Serial Killer. You may have seen this in the media referred to as the Gilgo Beach Killer, the Craigslist Ripper, or even LISC, which is the abbreviation of Long Island Serial Killer. There are six additional people that may have been victims of this same killer, and the murder span a time frame of almost 20 years. It's a complicated story to tell, and there are many people involved. In our podcast episodes, we plan to discuss the disappearance of Shannon Gilbert in May 2010. Police found the first Long Island serial killer victims while searching for Shannon in a marshy area in Oak Beach in December 2010. It's been debated as to if a Shannon was a victim of the Long Island serial killer, but even if she isn't, her story becomes intertwined with the investigation and some of the suspects early on. We also plan to discuss the discovery of the Long Island serial killer victims and the stories of their lives. And finally, we'll discuss the suspects, people of interest in the case, and some of the theories and questions that we've, have popped up during our research. Before we start, I'll add in that there are some unusual place names and pronunciations in this story. I've looked up how to say them and I hope I don't butcher them too terribly. So part one, we'll talk about the disappearance and death of Shannon Gilbert. Shannon was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on October 24, 1986 to her mother Mari Gilbert. We haven't found Shannon's father named in the media. Mari left Shannon's father when their three kids were very young because of his heroin addiction. She moved with her daughters Shannon, Sarah and Sherry to upstate New York. Mari's next partner, who was also the father of her youngest daughter Stevie, was arrested for domestic violence and the children spent nearly two years in foster care. The youngest children, Stevie and Sherry, would eventually be reunited with Mari, but Shannon and her sister Sarah would be raised in foster homes. Shannon was, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when she was 12. She stopped taking her meds in high school because it made her feel unwell. While she was in foster care, Shannon went to Newport Central High School where she was able to graduate a year early in 2003 at the age of 16. After high school, Shannon moved around and worked several different jobs. She stayed at her grandmother's in Suffern, New York and then moved to her boyfriend's house in North Carolina. Her next move was to an apartment in Upper Saddle River, New Jersey. She had jobs as a hotel receptionist, an Applebee's hostess, and a snack prepper at a senior center, but her dream was to be a singer. Rolling Stone wrote an article about Shannon, and they said, Gilbert, a warm-hearted 24-year-old raised primarily in foster care, fell into prostitution the same way many women do. An up unstable upbringing, an uncertain future, the alternative of earning less in 40 hours at minimum wage than in one day as an escort. In 2007, when Shannon was 21, she started working first as an escort. She worked for an agency called Laced Party Girls. The escort life wasn't easy. She was caught in a sting operation at a hotel and was charged with engaging in prostitution. She was also assaulted badly enough to need a metal plate put into her jaw. Through Laced Party Girls, Shannon met Alex Diaz, who was a driver for the agency, and they started dating in 2008. 
In 2009, Shannon began advertising on Craigslist and was using a man, Michael Pack, as her driver and her security guard. She charged $200 an hour and Michael would get one third of that, and she usually made at least $600 per night. A man named Joseph Brewer contacted Shannon after seeing her escort ad on Craigslist. They agreed that Shannon would travel to his house in Oak Beach, New York on May 1, 2010. Shannon and Michael arrived at Brewer's house at around 2am. Shannon went inside and Michael remained in the vehicle and waited for her to finish the job. There were six phone calls between Shannon and Michael made between around 2am and 4.30am on that day. One of the calls included a call to the nearby CVS. Shannon wanted Michael to go and pick up some lube and a deck of playing cards, but Michael didn't want to as he was not familiar with the area. Between 4.30 and 5am, Brewer tried to get Michael Pack's attention. He wanted Michael to help get Shannon to leave his house. She was hiding behind one of the couches and was refusing to leave. He wanted Michael to go into the house to get Shannon. She is panicking. She is very frightened. Something has clearly gone wrong inside the house with Shannon and Joseph Brewer. As he tries to engage Shannon in conversation, Michael Pack comes to understand that there's something else going on here, which is that Shannon is on the phone. She's on the phone with the police. And she says, they're trying to kill me. Not he's trying to kill me, or I'm about to be killed, but they're trying to kill me. At 4.51am, 911 operators received a frantic call from Shannon, who was at the time still inside Brewer's home. She was screaming, they're trying to kill me. She ran from Brewer's house and started running down the street, banging on neighbors' doors for help. She runs out of his home. She calls 911. She runs through the neighborhood, knocking on doors. And whenever someone comes to the door who attempts to uh, call the police... Um, but not take her in, she runs. The 911 call lasted 23 minutes and dispatchers tried to determine her location. Two neighbours called police and reported seeing her running from Brewer's home towards a swampy area. By the time police arrived on the scene at 6am, which was an hour after she called 911, Shannon was nowhere to be found. Richard Dormer, who was the then Suffolk County Police Commissioner, said that after running from Brewer's house, Shannon knocked on the doors of two elderly residents, Gus Quilletti and Barbara Brennan. They both separately called the police. For some reason, it took months for the police to connect Shannon's 911 call to the reports of a panic-stricken woman knocking on doors in Oak Beach and to the missing persons report filed by her family. The reason given for this delay was because when the 911 operator asked Shannon where she was, she said she was around Jones Beach and not Oak Beach, where she actually was. Shannon's phone records from 10.02pm on the night before she disappeared, which was April 30, and 4.51am on May 1, show 13 entries. We've put those phone records up on truecrimesociety.com if you'd like to have a look. It would be two days before Shannon's family learned that she was missing. Her boyfriend Alex Diaz called them to say that she hadn't come home. Her sisters had been worried about receiving a call like this ever since they learned that she'd turned to escorting. Strangely enough, on May 3rd, before she'd even been reported missing, Shannon's mother received a call from a man named Dr. Peter Hackett. Hackett was a former surgeon who lived close to Joseph Brewer in Oak Beach. 
According to Mari, Hackett told her, I run a home for wayward girls, and he told her that he'd help Shannon on the night of her disappearance. We will go back into more detail about Hackett later. Shannon's family filed a missing persons report on May 3rd, but after hearing nothing for days from police, they drove to Oak Beach themselves to put up posters and speak to the neighbours. Shannon had been missing for eight days at this point. It was now May the 9th. Mari felt that Shannon's disappearance wasn't being treated with urgency and that her daughter was being dismissed because she was a sex worker. In 2011, she told the New York Times, I think they look at them like they're a throwaway. Former homicide commander of the NYPD Bronx Homicide Task Force, Vernon Gay Berth, has worked hundreds of murder cases and has studied this one closely. I don't think if Shannon Gilbert's mother didn't make the hue and cry that she did, that they would have done anything in Suffolk County. If that was some millionaire debutante from the Hamptons, I bet you there would have been a whole crew out there looking for her. On December 10, 2010, Detective John Malia, accompanied by a canine named Blue, found skeletal remains along the northern edge of Ocean Parkway. Blue was training for cadaver searches at the time. Investigators assumed that the remains would belong to Shannon, but they were actually identified as belonging to Melissa Bartholomew of the Bronx, who was another young escort who had advertised on Craigslist. She was last seen in July 2009. Police began to search the area more thoroughly, and on December 13, 2010, which was three days after the first sets of remains were found, they came across three more sets of remains. The initial four bodies, we believe, were simply... The killer simply drove along Ocean Parkway, pulled off to the side of the road, the shoulder, we believe, removed the body and tossed it into the bramble as far as he could. These remains belong to Maureen Brainard Barnes, Amber Costello and Megan Waterman. All three were petite young women in their 20s who had worked as escorts, and they became known as the Gilgo Four due to the close proximity that their remains were found to Gilgo Beach. More remains were found in April 2011, and we will go into detail about them in the next section of the podcast. On December 13, 2011, exactly one year after the first set of remains were found, Shannon's remains were finally found in a marshy area on Oak Beach, behind the home of Peter Hackett. Her cell phone and other belongings had been found nearby a week earlier. After an exhaustive, methodical, massive search, we have this day at approximately 9.14 a.m., located a set of skeletal remains. We believe at this time to belong to the missing Shannon Gilbert. Of course, we will not know for sure if it's Shannon until the medical examiner confirms uh, whether the remains belong to her. The cause of death, of course, is also unknown till the medical examiner Uh, does the uh, examination and process of the remains. On May 1, 2012, which was exactly two years after Shannon's disappearance, her cause of death was officially classified as undetermined due to insufficient information and the condition of her remains when they were found. County officials theorised that she had wandered into the marsh and drowned. And like the other victims, Suffolk County Police did not investigate Shannon's death as the work of a serial killer, and instead they labelled it as a drowning. She went into that uh, area that night, hysterical, upset, overcome by the elements, and she expired. Friends and family refused to believe that. 
They say the 911 call and the fact that her clothing and purse were found far from her remains suggests foul play. I will wait till an autopsy is performed to um, know for sure what happened to her. It's interesting to note that since Shannon's body was discovered in May of 2010, the Suffolk County Acting Police Commissioner and Chief of Detectives have both resigned. Former Chief of Department James Burke resigned and is actually being considered a suspect in the Long Island serial killer case, and we'll go into more detail about that when we speak about the suspects. The new Acting Police Commissioner has been called, has called in the FBI to investigate the suspected serial killer. Shannon's family have been calling for the case to be reopened as a homicide and have asked for a full review of the evidence. On February 12, 2016, Shannon's family hired forensic pathologist and the former New York City medical examiner, Dr. Michael Baden, to do an independent examination. He said in his report, There is no evidence whatsoever that Shannon Gilbert died a natural death. There is no evidence that Shannon died from a drug overdose, and there is no evidence whatsoever that Shannon died from drowning. Baden said that the evidence was consistent with homicidal strangulation, but that the evidence was insufficient for him to release an official cause of death. All right, so now we'll move on to part two for today's episode, and we'll talk about the victims. Ten victims have been confirmed as being killed by the Long Island serial killer, and as we've said, there are six possible more victims. The first four sets of remains were found in December 2010, and they were the ones dubbed the Gilgo Four. They were all identified as missing sex workers who had advertised their services on Craigslist. Each had been strangled and her body was wrapped in a burlap sack with no clothing or jewellery and they were all dumped along Gilgo Beach. The bodies had been left roughly 500 feet apart from one another, exactly 50 feet from the edge of Ocean Parkway. The first of these four bodies was later identified as 24-year-old Melissa Bartholomew, who had last been seen in July 12, 2009. She was sitting on a curb outside the Bronx basement apartment that she shared with her five cats. Melissa had moved to New York from Buffalo in 2007 to work as a hairstylist. She told her family that she was stripping to earn money to return home and open her own salon, but that business at the club was slow. What she didn't tell her family was that she was advertising her services on Craigslist and on occasion through an escort agency called James Bond Entertainment. Her working name was Chloe. Her final secret was the $1,000 date she'd lined up on the night of her disappearance. Her older, on-again, off-again boyfriend, Johnny Terry, was her pimp, according to law enforcement, and he denies this role. Terry maintains that on the night of her disappearance, she was very secretive about her plans and declined his offer of a ride. Terry did know of an older man on Long Island that she was chummy with, but he has no more details. He did not report her missing until several days of unanswered and unreturned phone calls went by. He says police refused to help him because she wasn't underaged or handicapped. Melissa's sister Amanda began to receive phone calls from Melissa's cell phone. She said these calls were from an older white man who asked if the person answering was Melissa's little sister. This person called once a week and there were seven calls in all. The caller taunted Amanda and called her a half-breed, and he asked her if she was going to grow up to be a whore like her sister. Police get their first break in the case when they made a connection with 24-year-old victim Melissa Bartholomew. Someone, possibly her killer, used her cell phone from Manhattan to call her sister with a chilling message. This guy is a sexual sadist, there's no doubt about it. For him to take the phone and call Melissa's little sister and describe, vividly describe what he did to her sister 
and how he's going to do it to her. That, that is him reliving the crime. The problem was that the cell call were made from midtown Manhattan and out in the island. They couldn't find him. There's too many, too many calls. And then he disposed of the phone. Melissa's mother continued to pay the phone bill and says it was only turned on when the killer made his phone calls to Amanda and that the calls were no more than three minutes in duration each time. Police traced the calls to cell towers in Times Square and Madison Square Garden, but that information gave them nothing to go on. The last call was made on August 26, 2009, and he announced that he was Melissa's killer. Terry claims that he also received numerous phone calls from a white guy threatening and taunting him, and there were about 30 phone calls over a period of eight months. The second victim was found 0.16 miles away from Melissa. She was identified as 27-year-old Amberlyn Costello from North Carolina. Amber was last seen in September 2010 in North Babylon, New York, getting into a client's car. In Amber's short life, she left an impression on everyone who knew her. Described by friends and family as an innate giver, Amber struggled since early in her life with drug habits, and she was married twice. Her first husband, Michael, who says the relationship soured when he discovered her heroin addiction, described her as a good girl with just bad habits. He gave her an ultimatum about her drugs, but he still married her. He'd always wondered how she was, but he couldn't handle the life on the wild side that she ultimately chose. Strangely, he says he can't recall when they were married, but that their marriage only lasted for around two years. Second husband Don Costello remembers Amber similarly. She'd kept a lot of secrets and was not truthful in their marriage. Their marriage lasted from December 2007 to March 2009, and the last time he saw her was in December 2009, when she picked up a Christmas tree from the home they'd shared in Clearwater, Florida. Sometime after that, Amber moved to Long Island. For her part, Amber's sister, Kimberly Overstreet, acknowledges that she's the one who introduced Amber into escorting. Mum of three, Kimberly, says that when they were escorting together, they were making $3,500 per week, and within four months, it went up to $7,000 a week. They travelled up and down the East Coast, escorting with an agency. In the year before her death, Kimberly had started tapering off to only 10 calls a night, and she was ready to get out of the business to raise her children. But Amber was growing increasingly desperate and was making up to five calls per night. Her sister says that when Amber began offering her services on Craigslist, she was doing calls for under $100 a day, just to keep up with her drug habit. When her soul left this earth, mind shattered, Kimberly said of Amber's death. 25-year-old Maureen Brainard Barnes was the third victim found, and she was found on the same day as Amber. Her remains were located just 0.05 miles away from Melissa's. She was last seen the night of July 9, 2007 at the Super 8 Motel in Midtown Manhattan, where she had a room. Her last known call that night was to her sister Missy, during which she told Missy that she was at Penn Station. Just after her disappearance, Maureen's friend Sarah received a call from a man on a number that she didn't recognise. The man claimed that he had just seen Maureen and that she was staying at a whorehouse in Queens. The man refused to identify himself, he couldn't give an address to this whorehouse and said he would call back later with an address. He never called again and had no discernible accent that could help identify him. Maureen left behind two children ages 8 and 1 when she vanished. Her sister Melissa said that Maureen loved reading as a child and would love to read in her bed at night. She said that she believes Maureen turned to sex work for survival, having recently been laid off as a telemarketer and was struggling to find work and facing eviction after falling behind on her rent. 
Friends and family described Maureen as bubbly and outgoing, and she thought everyone was her friend. 22-year-old Megan Waterman of Maine was the last of the Gilgo Four found, and is thought to have been killed most recently, before being discovered. Megan was discovered 0.07 miles away from Maureen, and she was last seen in June 2010 at a Holiday Inn Express in New York. The mother of a four-year-old, Megan was remembered by her mother Lorraine as a loss to the world, an awesome girl, a wonderful mum, and a friend. Lorraine reconnected with Megan when Megan found herself pregnant at 17. She moved in with her mum, who said that she missed out on her childhood because she, Lorraine, was a drunk who didn't get sober until Megan was 15. When I first got the phone call that Megan was missing, I, something told me, I guess I call it mother's instinct, I knew she wasn't coming back alive. You knew that? I knew it the day I got that phone call. Megan's family learned about her escorting during a random run-in with a grocery store clerk who heard about it secondhand. Megan denied being a prostitute and said that all she was doing was dancing. Lorraine believes Megan was forced into escorting by her boyfriend, Akeem Cruz, who was also her pimp. On the night of her disappearance, Cruz accompanied her to the Holiday Inn, but left her alone beyond that, though he usually stayed with her on her calls. Cruz was out on bail stemming from a cocaine charge. At some point, he ended up back in prison, and he said to have been less than forthcoming with detectives about what happened that night. On March 29, 2011, a skull, hands and a forearm were discovered in the brush along Ocean Parkway. Those remains were later identified as belonging to Jessica Taylor, who was 20 at the time she went missing. The rest of Jessica's dismembered body had been discovered earlier in a wooded area on the northwest corner of the Halsey Manor Road and Long Island Expressway in Manorville, New York, on July 26, 2003. So the first of her remains were found about eight years before her skull was found. Jessica went missing just weeks before the first parts of her remains were discovered by a woman walking her dog. Missing at the time were her head and her hands and a tattoo had been gouged off her hip. Manorville is about a 50-mile drive from Gilgo Beach. Jessica had been working as as an escort at the time of her disappearance, and her body was found just east of where Megan Waterman was found. She'd recently left Washington, D.C. and had been working near the Port Authority before her disappearance. Dubbed as Jane Doe No. 6 or Manorville Jane Doe, this victim remains unidentified. Different parts of her remains were discovered at two separate times. In November 2000, the victim's nude dismembered torso was found in plastic bags in the woods in Manorville. No other body parts were found at this time. On April 4, 2011, her head, hands and her right foot were found in a plastic bag near the Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach. Jane Doe is thought to have been a white female aged between 30 and 40. She may have had brown hair and either a tattoo or a distinguishing mark on her right ankle or calf. Three other sets of remains were found on April 4, 2011, along with Jane Doe number 6. The next victim was found 0.04 miles away from Jane Doe, and the remains belonged to an unidentified female toddler. Police believe the toddler was approximately two years old when she died. She was likely not white and is believed, obviously, to be a female. The baby was found wrapped in a blanket with a 16-inch gold-coloured chain and two gold-coloured hoop earrings. The final remains found on April 4 are the skeletal remains of an unidentified man referred to by police as Asian male. His remains were found 0.28 miles from where Megan was discovered. Police estimate that this male was between 17 and 23 at the time of his death and he was approximately 5 foot 6 inches tall with poor dental health. 
Police believe he had died sometime between 5 and 10 years prior to his remains being found. He has been also dubbed as John Doe No. 8. Some online reports also indicate that this man may have been found dressed in women's clothing. Former Suffolk County Police Commissioner Richard Dormer said in 2011 that though they don't fit the same victim profile, they believe the male and the toddler were connected to the sex trade in some way. These common denominators indicate that we have one person committing the crime. On April 11, 2011, seven miles from the most recent victims found the previous week, two more victims were discovered. Only parts of their remains were found though. The first set of remains, which are the ninth overall, are believed to be linked to the mother of the toddler found a week earlier. Officials linked this woman's partial remains to a still unidentified woman whose torso was found in a wooded area in Long Island's Rockville Centre in 1997, and that's according to the Long Island Press. A hiker found her torso crammed in a black plastic bag inside a green Rubbermaid container along with a maroon towel and a flowery pillowcase. The woman had a distinct tattoo of a peach with a bite taken out of it on her left breast. This led the media to dub her Peaches. Peaches is believed to have been an African-American woman between 20 and 30, and it appeared that she had a C-section at some point. Investigators later determined via DNA that Peaches is indeed the mother of baby Doe. Peaches' skull has never been found, and her and the baby are still unidentified. Peaches' story aired on America's Most Wanted, and her tattoo was also published in a tattoo magazine, and they got a tip from a Connecticut tattoo artist. The artist recalled Peaches visiting from Long Island with her aunt and her cousin, and she mentioned boyfriend trouble. The extremities of Peaches that were recovered on Jones Beach had two gold bracelets, and the baby was found with similar jewellery. The Long Island Press notes that it appears Peaches' manner of death most closely resembles that of Jessica Taylor and Jane Doe No. 6. The second set of remains found on May 11 includes the skull of a woman who is still unidentified. Through DNA analysis, Fire Island Jane Doe's skull was linked to the remains found in Davis Park on Fire Island in 1996. On April 20, 1996, beachgoers at Blues Point Beach found her legs wrapped in plastic. While her identity remains uncleared, as per the Doe Network, it's believed that she was a white female aged between 18 and 50 when she died. On the middle of her right leg, she had a three and a half inch lateral scar, a one inch linear scar on the lateral mid to lower leg, and a half inch scar on the medial ankle. On her medial left ankle, she had a two inch surgical scar with adjacent suture scars, indicating that she may have had surgery at some point. Her toes were painted red. There are six other people who have also been found deceased who may be possible Long Island serial killer victims. The first of the sixth is 19-year-old Tina Foglia of Brentwood, New York. She went missing on February 1, 1982, after she was hanging out at the local rock venue Hammerheads. Her body was found later that month dismembered and dispersed amongst three bags on the shoulder of Sagtikos Parkway. Tina was killed decades before most of the victims, but many still speculate that she could have been the first or an early victim of the Long Island serial killer. PIX11 News has noted that the southern part of the parkway where Tina was found brings drivers straight into Captree State Park, which is a gateway to Ocean Parkway and it runs through both Oak and Gilgo beaches. According to the Doe Network, a suitcase with the dismembered torso of a woman washed up on the beach at Harbour Island Park in Mamaronek, I think that's how you say it, on March 2007, a town 50 miles away from Gilgo Beach. This person, the second of the additional possible victims, had been stabbed and had a distinct tattoo of two cherries, according to NamUs, which the tattoo is reminiscent of Peaches. 
On March 21, 2007, one of her legs washed up at Cold Spring Harbour on Long Island's North Shore. The next day, her other leg washed up at Oyster Bay. Both legs had some toes painted pink. Her head has still not been recovered. Cherries is believed to have been possibly Hispanic or African-American, aged between 35 and 50, and she was very tall. Her height was either between 5 foot 7 and 6 foot 1. 39-year-old mother of three, Tanya Rush, is the third additional possible victim. 39-year-old mother of three, Tanya Rush, is the third additional possible victim. Her dismembered body was discovered stuffed into a small suitcase on the shoulder of the Southern State Parkway, about 18 miles away from Gilgo Beach, on June 27, 2008. Like most of the other victims, she sometimes worked in the sex trade. Investigators are still looking for a connection into her death and the Long Island serial killer case. The fourth possible victim is Shannon Gilbert, who we've spoken about before. The fifth additional victim was discovered on January 23, 2013. A woman walking her dog on a beach in Lattington found a human skeleton wearing a necklace with a gold pig pendant. Her dog sniffed out a buried bag which contained the human remains. Police have not officially linked this woman to the Long Island serial killer case, and the woman is believed to be in her 20s. Other media outlets have theorized that she could be connected, and she is still unidentified. The sixth and final additional victim washed up onto Gilgo Beach on June 24, 2013. Her name was Natasha Jugo. Natasha was last seen leaving her house on March 16, wearing pajama bottoms and a hooded sweatshirt. On March 17, her Prius was found along Ocean Parkway and some of her clothing and personal belongings were found in the sand on the beach. Natasha's mum told police that Natasha thought people were following her. The police have not officially linked Natasha's death to the other victims. So we've decided to break up the podcast episodes about the Long Island serial killer into two episodes. Today we've discussed Shannon Gilbert's disappearance and also the victims. And in the next episode, we'll speak about the suspects and some more theories relating to the case. So what do you guys think? Do you think that Shannon was a victim of the Long Island serial killer? I don't. You don't? I don't. I think there's a lot of different scenarios for what happened to her. I think it's very curious that the homeowner and her driver were having conversations back and forth. And if it's true that the driver said, you'll regret this to somebody who she allegedly spoke to that night. Uh, that's very curious. But ultimately, I think that she was on drugs or in a manic um, state. Did we mention the bit about not regret that? Because I don't remember that. No. So as we were researching this, I was kind of going off into other parts and reading probably a little bit of overkill. But there were parts where people that the in the neighborhood when Shannon's mom was canvassing the area reported to police that they had said or the driver had told her that she would regret this um Mm. if she talked to the police or um helped shannon that night so that's where i was coming from with that and i just don't think ultimately that that really rings true i think maybe i think i just believe it was a manic thing and she did drown in the marsh there i think I personally think that I, I, I kind of go back and forth. I, I could definitely say that it could be a misadventure for her where she just was drunk or on drugs and did go into the marsh. But Dr. Hackett for me is so suspect. I wouldn't be surprised if he eventually 
you know, if if it does come out eventually, and if he is involved, that wouldn't surprise me either. I don't I don't know if he killed her, but he possibly facilitated the things that happened to her. Is what I think. I don't think I'd be surprised either way, but I don't think yeah, that she either. was a victim of the same guy. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Where if it was one way or the other, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if she really was a victim of the Long Island serial killer, but I generally think I'm more leaning to she wasn't. I guess when you think about it, there are quite a lot of similarities between what, you know, her circumstances, I guess, and the other victims. Like, you know, he's actually called the Craigslist ripper sometimes because he found a lot of his victims on Craigslist. That's where... But then I guess in saying that, I also don't think it was Joseph Brewer and he was the one who found her on Craigslist. So I don't know, but it's just weird. I guess, you know, there's a lot of parallels, but people who work in the sex industry would have those parallels anyway, if that makes sense. They're all high risk. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think happened to her stuff? I don't know. It could go either way. I think it'd be a lot easier to say if they found her sooner and there was like a better autopsy and. Because didn't, I don't know if this is just from the movie or, well, I guess the movie was based on the true story, but didn't they say they didn't find drugs in her system or that there just wasn't evidence because of how long her remains were there? Do we know? I think that um that Dr. Michael Baden said that there was no evidence that she died of a drug overdose. But then he also said they couldn't come to a cause of death because there was enough information. So I wonder if she really didn't do drugs or if they just couldn't tell. I think that seems to happen a lot when the body is in a very bad condition. The same with Paul Swenson. Remember him? Yes, of course. (laughs) And he was a lot sooner than Shannon was. Yeah, 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 that's true. And they still couldn't apparently determine from him the levels of drugs or alcohol in his system at the time he died. Yeah, her remains must have been in terrible condition because – I think she she was in like water, right? She was in because a marsh as well. They were severely decomposed. Yeah, yeah. But, they had to drain the area to yeah find her. Kind of gross, kind of gory, but I don't know if you've ever seen a water um, death. Yeah. But it's yeah. not pretty. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but I also think that it could too not necessarily be drugs, but I. I think it's safe to say that in her family, there was a history of Of mental mental illness. illness. Yeah. So I think that a manic phase would not be out of the realm of possibility either. And Shannon was definitely diagnosed as having bipolar when she was young anyway. So who knows? She wasn't taking medication. Yeah. Doesn't sound like she was taking great care of herself. If what Joseph Brewer said is true, it does seem more like, a psychotic break or like if she was doing drugs like a bad trip because he said that she basically just started freaking out and got super paranoid and started thinking someone was going to kill her basically yeah but and then even for her to not know when she called 911 and she told them that she was in a different place to where she was well the calls weren't released right or were they i think some of them were released in that lost girls movie I've heard maybe a little bit, unless it sounds like they may have a transcript at least from that. I don't know if they do. The articles I've read are all kind of, they were waiting for it to be released, whether or not it has been or they've got access to some of it. Yeah. Um, But 
But they, they did. It has. They did say that she told the nine one one operator that she was in a different place to where she was, and that's why it took them so long to connect the calls to her actual disappearance. Yeah, I still think that's whether she's a victim of Long Island serial killer or not. I think the police were definitely lazy with it because yeah. she said she was in Jones Beach, but she was on Oak Beach or around. Is that around? Because I know Gilgo Beach, which is the same area, is only 10 minutes away from Jones Beach. I'll have a look, see how far it is. I used to go to that area. I haven't been there for years, but when we were in high school, everyone would always go to Jones Beach and drink, basically. But the whole area is not very big. It's a very. Well, it says that Jones Beach is on Ocean Parkway anyway. Yeah. Like Ocean Parkway, it's just one long street yeah. totally flat road with pretty much nothing else on it except like a lot of brush and swamplands and the beach and super narrow and google bucks. says it's 15 yeah. miles from jones beach to oak beach so it's still a fair way i guess but yeah it's all on the same stretch of road yeah i just unless there's a ton of crime in the area then i just don't see how they didn't put together yeah you wouldn't think there'd be that the many calls from the neighbors that were reporting her running around upset and then her call that lasted 23 minutes i don't understand why they couldn't track it in that 23 minutes you know surely they could unless i don't know might have been something stopping it but you would think within 23 minutes they should surely be able to track a 911 call like a general area yeah no matter where she said she her was general area would still come up as like jones beach area yeah maybe it is interesting that you bring it up you know that Police seem to act quickly on some missing person cases and very, very slowly on other ones. Mm-hmm. And that, like her mother said that because she was living a high-risk lifestyle that she felt they didn't act appropriately or quickly enough. That's probably true, but yep. back in the day, at least anyways, when this happened, not that it was really that long ago, but. I, I still think it does happen. Like you hear and in the group I see lots of, articles about people that live high-risk lifestyles and there's like some of these people have been missing for a year and the article's just coming out now yeah so I think sometimes a definitely and a lot of these people too are probably estranged from their families or don't have as much to do with their families in some cases anyway so maybe it does take a while for them to for people to realize that they are missing which might be part of it but in this case you know her family realized relatively quickly within a few days that she was missing, but the police still didn't seem to do a lot. I feel like when the 911 call was placed and she was clearly frantic and screaming and very upset, they didn't know she was a sex worker then and it still took them. I don't think they did. I feel like that's not something she would say on the phone unless yeah, no. she did, but I feel like they would have had no reason to know that then and they still took an hour to get there. You think that if someone made a 23-minute 911 call screaming they're trying to kill me, that, yeah, it wouldn't take them an hour to get there? Yeah, I don't I don't know. And I know that area, like that county, they do have, at least semi-recently, they have a lot of problems with gangs. So mm. I don't know if it's either the police department's very busy or... I think it depends, too, small. on the size. Yeah. And also time of night like a lot of county police and i think it was suffolk county right yeah yeah they don't have a ton of people working overnight so for example where my husband's from they have three state troopers canvassing 
and I know that's county um, versus state troopers, but they have three state police troopers overnight canvassing three counties. And then the counties only have one or two people. So I think it depends how big the county is um, distance wise and how well staffed the department is too, that it could take a long time. And then it also could just be ineptitude on the part of the police and the dispatchers. I'm assuming when I, the more I think about it, that I don't know, maybe I wonder if Brewer called 911 as well. Like, you know, there's things that we don't know and maybe that's why maybe, you know. It's just crazy to me because maybe it wasn't a problem in 2010 when she went missing. But like I was saying, they have a huge problem with MS-13 there. Yeah. Like I just looked it up and an article from December 2019 says nearly 100 charged in Suffolk County for MS-13 arrests. And that's where they've had some double homicides, like two young girls were killed and beat to death. Um There was like a quadruple homicide where four high school boys were beat to death by MS-13. So I just feel like like maybe it's different now, but I feel like if they have such problems like that, they would be more responsive. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess 10 years is a lot of different. Yeah. Even different technology and all that in terms of tracing the 911 call, I guess, is also maybe a reason why it just all went wrong for her. I also wonder if drugs were like a big issue down there where they had people overdosing or calling and just being crazy so the dispatchers were dismissive of it too because the police don't get the call until the dispatcher gives them the call which i mean still either way i i think everybody agrees the ball was dropped there in a big way but from some of the reading i did there was mentions of other parties and other people getting prostitutes doing cocaine so maybe they just because of that area but then again they didn't know she was there apparently so yeah call. it sounds more and more like it's just a series of fuck-ups for lack of a better word like you know they took too long to get there gave her enough time to get away they couldn't track her for whatever reason just all was a series of unfortunate events that led to her death i think oh that's an interesting thing in january of 2019 the new york police were fighting judges order to release the 911 tapes of yeah. Shannon in the serial killer case. I was trying to find the 911 tapes so we could include them in this, but I, I'm, as far as I know, they haven't been made public still. So I don't know what the issue is. I'll look into that. I'll see if I can find that. Maybe dispatch, like Ashley was saying, didn't take it seriously. Hmm. I find it hard to believe they didn't know where, though. And I think that if they did know where, that might have been why, too. I mean, the neighborhood doesn't look that nice in the movie yeah. but it's a gated community right does, yeah. so does that mean that it is a nice area and maybe the police know that the uh men there like to yeah entertain women of the paid variety and so they kind of turn their head and give them time to get rid of the crazy once they're done a lot of reading I did and when they mentioned, especially Joseph Brewer, that he'd split up from his wife and that his house was kind of known in the neighbourhood after the d- separation or divorce as a bit of a party house for escorts yeah. as well. So that could be. If you want to get into like, conspiracy, you could say that there's undercover like sex ring party thing going on in Oak Beach, which I feel like is kind of what the movie wanted to hint at. Well, it's in the next episode anyway when we talk about the suspects. The yeah. former 
you know, James Burke, who was the police chief or department chief, he has been caught with escorts before and an escort, you know, which we'll talk about anyway. But so he was the chief at the time when Shannon went missing. So that's not too out of the realm of possibility, I don't think. I feel like in America, at least, that a lot of the law enforcement people enjoy that type of thing. Yeah. Lack of a classier way to say that. I mean, the the CIA got in trouble a couple of years ago. I think it was the CIA. Or no, it was the Secret Service because when they were traveling overseas, they were um, entertaining prostitutes. It's a common theme with law enforcement. Yeah. I know we're talking about if we thought Shannon was a victim, but in comparison to the other victims or mainly the Gilgo Four, I guess, what do you think makes them different? Do you think that they were all victims? Do you think it could just be a dumping ground because it's there's not much in the area? It's just kind of a road? I think some of the six additional ones could be Long Island serial killer victims. I don't think Natasha Jugo, if that's how you say her last name, Sounds like she was one. She was found washed up on a beach, which kind of goes against everything that's happened with the other victims today. And she wasn't dismembered. But some of the others were like Rena Foglia, I think is how you say her name. She was dismembered, but she was a very, if she was victim, she would have been a very, very early one. So of the six, I'd say there might be four. That could be possible. Probably actually three when I think about it. Rena Foglia, the one who they dubbed Cherries. She was also dismembered, I think. And then there was Tanya Rush, who was dismembered and put in a suitcase. So it's a little bit different because the others were found in burlap sacks and everything. But still, what are the odds that there's some more than two or three people in the same area who yeah. are going around dismembering people? Yeah, I feel like the ones that were dismembered definitely have to yeah. be connected to each other, whether it's the Long Island serial killer or not. And I think the Gilgo Four are definitely connected to each other because they were all found like 50 yards apart from each other in burlap sacks. But it's hard to say if are the dismembered bodies in the Gilgo Four connected? Did Long Island Steeler killers start to get lazy? Was it hard to dismember people when you're older? (laughs) I don't know. I've never dismembered anyone. Maybe, yeah. (laughs) So just saying how it could be a dumping ground. I mentioned before the area, like if you wanted to dump a body it seems like a good area especially at night I feel like it wouldn't be very busy during the day it can be busy because people go to the beaches but that's really all it is it's just a straight road some swamp area a lot a lot of like overgrown brush and then the ocean like some parts there's houses but where Gilgo beaches there's not really any houses there when you said it's quite a flat straight road that would be a plus I guess for someone looking to dump a body because you could literally pull over and dump them and it's yeah. there's lots of options of where to do it yeah like one side of the road is swampy brush area and then the beach is on the other side and it's so narrow so i just feel like at night it's probably not very busy because what are people doing besides dumping bodies there at night i guess for me also the the last two of the six they were found in 2013 so for me that could be not a copycat but maybe someone's Whoever killed yeah. them, if 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 they were murdered, has decided to do it there because they well, maybe it seems like a smart idea. Them. Yeah, if you heard people were if that Washing bodies up. were being dumped yeah. there, why not dump your body there and just be like, <laughs> oh, it was the Long Island serial killer? 
So that could be a theory for the last two because the others were all all murdered and found, I think, before Shannon went missing. So for me, the first four are definitely the most likely to be connected. The last two, I think, are just coincidental. It's weird how there was the man and then the baby and then the mom. Yeah. Like and I, how they said the man and the toddler are connected to the sex trade. So I wonder if the man was a pimp maybe. He was found wearing women's clothes. The man? Yes. I didn't know that until I just was looking for the neighbor who said the driver kind of made her feel threatened. And then I came across an article saying that the boy that they found, because I think they said he was between 17 and 23. Yeah. Um, it just said that he was found wearing uh, girls' clothes. So I wonder if he was also a sex worker. Yeah. I just assumed when I read it, when they said them, they believe the male and the toddler, I just assumed that the male, the toddler, and the toddler's mother were all connected, but it might not be. The yeah. male just might be a standalone case, and yeah, I think he's they've kind of grouped him with the toddler just for that statement. But it's also weird because if I'm remembering right, the mom and the toddler weren't found together, right? They were not. They were found around the same time, but the toddler was found near the boy. Yeah. Okay, that's um, what I thought. And then they were found a week apart, I think, the mother and the toddler. Yes. And then yeah, um, it's just weird. I think it was a couple years later that they conclusively said that Peaches was Baby Doe's mother. They right. connected yeah. them via DNA, but they were assuming immediately that they were related, I believe. I think that Cherries is definitely killed by the same person as Peaches and Baby Doe. Yeah. And I think I think it's likely. I know that Peaches and Baby Doe were, they believed that they were African-American. And yep. uh, mm-hmm. John Doe was Asian. So I don't know if they were related beyond that, but I thought the tattoo artist was interesting. Yeah, it must be so annoying to remember meeting this person and remember those things about them and just not, like, that's all you have can have any more info. It must be so frustrating to be like, I remember meeting this person. I remember talking to them. And who was there with them. But that's it. And it's like, you're so close. But I think it's crazy that he remembered, was it that she was there with family? With her aunt and her cousin, yeah. So her aunt and cousin, I just feel like they should have come forward by now. Yeah. But obviously she's missing. Yeah, true. He could be confused. But it seems like a tattoo that not everyone gets. Yeah. Kind of a tripper tattoo. A juicy yeah. ripe peach with a bite taken out of it. Yeah, but even with any of these people, they must have family. I guess it's easy to, if they were prostituting and if they were into drugs or anything like that, or if they weren't, I guess they probably fell off the grid from their family, I feel like yeah. is what you hear in stories like that. But, like, wouldn't you look? Or I mean... I think there are some people who really just don't have any family for whatever reason, if they're estranged or... By choice, you know, if they have just decided they don't want anything to do with them. For all their family, no, they might just be out there living the life that they chose, you know, if they maybe they were, in, you know, were yeah. a drug addict or whatever and maybe got no reason to believe otherwise. And I guess you'd always think too that if something did happen to a family member, you would be notified. But I guess there are just these few that slip through the cracks that they can't identify. Yeah, there's been a few cases I think where a mom would report their kid missing and be like, I haven't seen him for 10 years, but it's because he was out backpacking around the country. But yeah. 
that one with the guy that was found in Mexico or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Casper yeah, was his name. Tattoo. Yeah, yeah. I think that was one where the mom was like, he was following around the Grateful Dead. Like I didn't, yep. I wasn't in touch with him. <laughs> That's so crazy. And I guess too, like a lot of these people, or the unidentified ones anyway, were found. I guess not that long ago, but you'd hope that they preserved the remains well enough that they could get DNA, especially with all this familial DNA and things like that that are coming out now. Yeah. But we haven't heard anything, so maybe not. Peaches was killed a long time ago, wasn't she? Like 1990s? 97? Yeah. Yeah. And the only reason they haven't identified her, if I'm remembering what you said right, is her skull is missing. I still don't understand, like, you know, yeah, and I guess in 1997 maybe they especially wouldn't have been able to keep the DNA or access the DNA. They found her hands in on... Uh, later, wasn't it? Later, yes. So yep. her hands and her um, something else was missing. They only found her torso at first. That's all they found. Oh, actually, the remains they found in 2011 were the rest of Peaches. Except her skull. Yep. Which is still missing. I know when I took forensic, I don't know all the details of this because I took just basic forensics classes in college years ago. But I know that they said that from crime scenes like this where they have unidentified bodies and or if they find DNA at a crime scene, it goes into a database. And then when they run the DNA of people that are arrested or put in other cases, it's supposed to tell you when there's a match. But it's just weird how, like you were saying, just because they don't have her skull, can't they still get DNA from your body? Or is it maybe she was too decomposed? And the other thing is too, I, I, does, I haven't seen if, you know, that they've ever mentioned what parts of the toddler they found or if they found the whole parts. Do you know, Ashley? I'm pretty sure they found the whole toddler. I guess it's different with a baby because she wouldn't probably have dental records and all that. But they, you should think they should surely be able to get some more information from the baby's skull, like even more information about what she looked like or, you know, a reconstruction or something like that. Well, if they have the baby, you'd think they could do... See, I just don't know how they were doing things back then, but they could do mitochondrial DNA, which links... The baby was only found nine years ago, so that surely they would have had access to some pretty decent technology and techniques. Like if they can get Kara Kopetsky's DNA or mitochondrial DNA when all they found of her was a partial skull, yeah, like without her jaw, so I think they couldn't do dental records, why not them? Well, I think they did have some DNA and able to be able to confirm at a later point that Peaches or Baby Doe was indeed Peaches, right? I don't know, maybe there's just no hits in the database. Mm. And I think that's what I think that's why a lot of serial killers target sex workers is because most of them are off the grid. I mean, looking for them. Right. No family. I mean, a lot of I know there's the positive sex trade workers now and everything else but i mean that the theory back then was that the people who do that are forced into that having no other alternative foster kids all that stuff and i guess a lot of them are quite vulnerable as well like there would be i'd assume a fairly high percentage of them with mental illness and addiction and things like that so a you're guaranteed to get the victim by booking a job b they're probably going to be easier i guess to hurt or kill than someone you've just got off the street maybe yeah 
and there's not going to be that many people caring about them to look for them, I think, yeah. is the thought process. Yeah. One that I thought was maybe one of the more brutal ones, which I guess would fit in with the other dismembered ones, the Jessica Taylor one where her tattoo was gouged off and oh, she was yes. dismembered. That one seemed maybe the worst out of all of them. I, I kind of lumped her, the one that they found right after her, and Peaches together. Yeah. As the worst, because they did the same, but the, the gouging was... I thought it was weird how they gouged, whoever killed her gouged her tattoo off, but then Peaches and Cherries still have their tattoos. I'm wondering mm. what hers was, that they, maybe it was something that was so... Distinctive. Yes, so distinctive that they could have traced back. Yeah. Um, could have been a name was. or, a, you know, something like that. That's more, that or was easier something to trace. That was a really good tattoo artist who would know that, you know, yeah. he created that work where cherries and a peach are just pretty generic work. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Interesting too how the Gilgo Four weren't dismembered. They were all just wrapped in the sacks. So I've read an article too about would it really be the same killer for those four plus the ones that were dismembered because serial killers don't often de-escalate. They, you know, he wouldn't go from dismembering people to just wrapping them in a sack and leaving them on the side of the road. Unless he got older because it, yeah. it was a good 10 years between most of the dismembered ones to yeah, the... Yeah, Gilgo 4 is all like 2007, 2009, 2010. Yep. And then the other ones are from like the late 90s. Mm-hmm. So maybe he just got winded in his old age. The other thing too, who knows, you know, obviously we don't know who it is, but his circumstances may have changed. Maybe he had a job where he had access to stuff that he could dismember people with and he doesn't have that job anymore for whatever reason. Just there's a whole bunch of reasons I guess it could happen. It's just an unusual thing. Yeah. 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 Jessica, the one that we were just talking about that had her was dismembered and had her two gouged off. She only went missing in 2003, so I mean, I guess it's still sooner than 2009, but yeah, that one's not that far off. Right, it's true. Either way, it's just crazy that all these dead girls and one guy and one baby have turned up in a relatively small area and no one's been caught for it. Yeah. All right, so that's what we've got for our first episode on the Long Island serial killer case. Next time we'll speak more about the suspects and updates in the case, so that might change your mind about what you think has happened. But if you want to get a sneak peek, check out our blog because we'll have the whole blog post up for it when this episode comes out. You can find our blog at truecrimesociety.com. We always talk about our Facebook group. If you're not part of that, you should definitely join. Just search True Crime Society on Facebook. It's a really big group with maybe like 111,000 people in it. Yeah. So you definitely want to be part of that. Same with Instagram, Twitter. Just search True Crime Society and follow us. If you like our podcast, review, subscribe, whatever you're supposed to do, please do all those things. If you have any feedback, let us know. Ashley? Sounds good. Ashley! <laughs> say the line! I forgot it. <laughs> Same crime. Nope, shit. Somebody else do it. Instead of see you next crime, same crime next time. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs> say see you next crime. What? Can you say it? See you next crime. <laughs> <laughs>